months ago, we had a preacher in my church, and he said, guess what my topic is? And that was all he gave us. He told us we were supposed to guess the first letter of his topic. And so we got really lucky, and somebody said, S, and it was something starting on S, so it was pretty quick. I would never be as harsh as that, but I do have a question for the children. About 50 days before my topic this morning, there is this great, great holiday in the church called Easter. And then, well, it's not exactly my topic this morning. 50 days after Easter, do you know what the, what the church holiday is? We had it two weeks ago, or one week ago, depending if you're Eastern Orthodox or not. Pentecost, the birthday of the church. Now, do you know what the church holiday is that's 10 days before Pentecost or 40 days after Easter? In my neck of the woods, we hardly celebrate it. I I live in a community where there are lots of old order groups, and they do celebrate it. They all take off church, sorry, they all take off work and they go to church in the morning, they go fishing in the afternoon. I'm I'm very masculine here. I don't know what the ladies do. Um, But anyways, it's Ascension Day. We don't even take off school for this, but I guess some people do. It's a wonderful day in the church. And this morning, I'm going to talk about Ascension Day. At least in my world, we we usually don't talk about it because it doesn't fall on a Sunday, so we, we just kind of brush over it. But it's really important. It's not the birthday of the church. It's like the pre-birthday of the church. My first text is from Luke well, you turn to Luke and keep a finger in Luke 24, that's the end of Luke, and then the beginning of his next epistle, which is Acts chapter 1. So we have two letters from Luke recorded in the New Testament. They're both written to this man named Theophilus, and both these letters describe the ascension in slightly different wording. In Luke 24, he is talking about the walk to Emmaus, and he says... This is Jesus saying, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart, to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He he explained himself. I heard one commentator call this a Bible school. Further down, later in the chapter, verse 44, He appeared to all his disciples in one place, and he said unto them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Again, this this Bible school idea. He's he's explaining himself. He's, He's doing the job of the Holy Spirit. He's explaining Christ in the scriptures. We don't think about that nowadays. The passage isn't speaking about nowadays. It's talking about a really specific 50-day period that's not repeatable. And we see the humility of Christ and the unity of the Spirit both in one place. In John 16, Jesus said, it is, it is good for me to go away. He used the word, it is expedient, it is beneficial. Noble for me, beneficial for you. Because somebody else can do what I'm doing, can do better than I can. That's the humility of Christ. Somebody else can do my job better than I can. Now, maybe the way I'm explaining this divorces the the person of the the Trinity with the work of the Trinity. 
And I don't mean to do that. Let me just repeat God's words. It's expedient. It is good for you that I go away, Jesus said. How, how can somebody else do a better job than me if that somebody else is the same as me? I, I don't know. That's the Trinity. But it is good that God in the person of Jesus Christ goes away so that God in the person of the Holy Spirit comes. I want to talk a little bit about how important it was that the powerful comforter comes. He will reprove the world of sin. He will remind us of righteousness. And he will exhort us because of the coming judgment on sin. John 16, verse 13. Don't need to turn there. When he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. He will do what I was doing just there. He will explain me. Verse 14, he will glorify me. Everything he says is going to be from me. He will open me up. That's quite a change. That's quite a thing. It's a change in how God was going to work in the church, in the entire world, actually. When Jesus was in the flesh, he was just one person. He could speak words to just a few people at a time. But then the Holy Spirit would come. The Holy Spirit who could touch all the believers at once, without any limitations of time and space. When Jesus was in the flesh, he could speak words that would be misunderstood or misheard or certainly misremembered. But when the Holy Spirit would come, he had no limitations like that. He could speak directly to the heart of a believer. So it was expedient. It was good for us that this change would come. And it was a big change. This suffering servant would become the exalted king. And the ministry of Jesus, which was an outer, visible, hands-on ministry, it would switch to God through the Spirit in the church. The ministry of Jesus, which was physical, would now be through the proxy of the church, through, through people. Through people. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that humbling? You can think of a lot of adjectives for people, like broken, like messed up, like not very good at their jobs. But it's through them. Our Lord's physical ministry is now the Spirit's ministry through men and women of faith. We don't physically see God. We just believe God is real because he's, he's not with us anymore in person. So there's this huge change that Luke is trying to explain. When Jesus went from being physically present to now being present through a proxy. And I imagine Luke staying up late at night trying to think about how to, how to, how to explain this to Theophilus. Because there's so many things to write. So many exciting things to write to Theophilus. And if he's like I am, then if he doesn't think about it, it's not going to come out concisely. So I think he sat down and said, I need to figure out how to, how to tell him that this change took place. So I'm going to make two separate volumes. Too much to fit into one Treatise, there's your, your good KJV word. There's this perfect spot to separate the two. One preacher called it a continental divide. You know, if a, if, a rainfall, if a raindrop falls on this side of the mountains, I think the Rocky Mountains, it'll go through rivers and lakes and end up in the Atlantic. And if it falls on this side of the mountain, it's going to go through rivers and lakes and end up in the Pacific. The continental divide. Another writer called it this, this great hinge of history. It's a dramatic shift in how God works in the world. And so Luke is telling us this great story, this single story, but he underscores the transition 
by making it in two books. Back to Luke 24, verse 46 to 53. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass, while he blessed them, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. And so, Luke ends his first chronicle of Jesus' physical ministry, and Gabriel ends his intro and gets into the text. And he begins his second chronicle, which is Jesus' ministry through that proxy, through the church, through the spirit-guided church now, with the same story. So now we're going to switch to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. Will you please jump to verse 8? But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. I apologize for the long intro, but I really just want to talk about the actual ascension. Now, I'm not up to, I grew up in Ukraine, I'm not up to the idea of an all-night vigil. That's how the Eastern Orthodox commemorate ascension. But if there were an all-night vigil, there'd be a lot to talk about. Just in these passages, if you, if you break it apart, there's a lot of God's care and God's vision and God's foresight. He is really going to take care of this church of his. So I'm just going to clumsily point out a few truths. And I hope that they're tantalizing to you. I hope that you want to study more yourself. First of all, Luke 24 says he was carried up. He was carried Acts 1 says he was taken. And other translations use the same idea. So the idea of being carried, the idea of being, con the idea of being carried presupposes that there was a conveyor. There was somebody to do the carrying. 
This wasn't Jesus' own idea. He didn't come up with this on his own. Didn't leave on his own. Didn't come up with the timing on his own. He didn't say, I'm tired of earth. He was. He didn't say, I'm sick of the suffering. I'm sure he was. He didn't say, I'm really annoyed at all the demanding people. I'm sure he was. He didn't decide that, oh, today is a good time to leave. We understand that God the Father carried up Jesus. And God the Father decides when Jesus comes back. My second point. He was carried up into heaven. It was not this instantaneous transition. It was some progressive thing. They could stand there and watch him go up through the air. This is a big thing. Here's a bit of theology. I, 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 I think Apostle Paul really liked talking about this, and I think it's really amazing as well. The air is enemy territory. The air, the visible heavens, the the That's a pretty dangerous place. Ephesians 2 talks about the prince of the power of the air. Ephesians 6 verse 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Colossians 2 verse 15, Having spoiled principalities and powers, that word again, he made a show of them openly triumphing over them in it. There was no skulking in the shadows on his way through scary territory when Jesus went back to heaven. He made a show of it openly. I I want to consider the ascension from the viewpoint of the spiritual. It's, It's empowering. It's really good to be on Jesus' side. It's like he was just sauntering through, swaggering through, saying, I I whooped you guys. I am the victor in this one. You thought you had me. If they would have known who he was, they would have never done it. That's what Paul says in another place. It's like, in your face, I am the victor. He triumphed over them openly after spoiling principalities and powers. Think about what had happened before this. Think about what was standard operating procedure before this. Daniel prayed and prayed. This is in the Old Testament, before Jesus had died. And finally, long after Daniel should have ever thought that he's still going to get an answer. An answer did come. Daniel chapter 10, verse 12. You don't need to turn there. I am come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia, and Paul uses this term too, he calls them princes, withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, who's on my side, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Not anymore. This is amazing. This is fabulous. Now, since Jesus was victorious and he sauntered through their territory, now even a puny little mortal, even Gabriel, can pray in the name of Jesus and have power, have power over the prince of the air, when apparently even the angels couldn't do that before. Think of the symbolism of Jesus being carried majestically right through their turf, wreaking havoc in their territory and then swaggering through saying, I'm the victor, boys, it's me. And the disciples, they had never seen this before. Well, maybe they had on the Mount of Transfiguration, but this was a new Jesus. They had seen the servant. They had seen the compassion. They had seen the suffering, but they had never seen this triumph. They had never seen him like, I don't know what you call it, showing off 
in kind of a holy way. They had seen him being tempted or they knew about the temptation and it wasn't at all like this. Not at all like this. Anyways, that sauntering through enemy camp, that's all well and good, but Jesus has places to go and things to do and people to meet. So he keeps on going and a cloud, a cloud received him out of their sight, the Bible says. A cloud that received him, that was, that was Shekinah glory. I'm going to just talk about the word Shekinah. This same word is used several times in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 13, it was the cloud that covered Mount Sinai, and the Lord was in that cloud. In Exodus chapter 33, there was this tabernacle of the congregation, this tent that was kind of outside the camp, and the Lord would come down, and there would be this, this cloud in front of the door of the tent, and the Lord would speak in an audible voice to Moses inside the tent. And it was the same cloud in 1 Kings chapter 8 when Solomon built this mighty, long-awaited temple and the Lord came and the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah, filled the temple so that the priests couldn't even perform their duties. So we use the term Shekinah glory to refer to God's manifest presence. Well, we just discussed what Shekinah is. Here's another word, manifest. Now, that's a word I've heard all my life, and I did rod and staff so I can spell it. But what does manifest mean? Let's unpack that term. I guess I just did. Manifest means something that's unpacked. I told you you'd hear about me. Vets like the word unpacked. As you know, cow's calf, and mare's foal, and nanny's kid, and ewes lamb, where I live, we even call them yos, and sows, pharaoh, and vixens, whelp, and does, that would be rabbits, they kindle. I was a vet for five years before I knew that one. And you know what embras do? I was a vet for eight years before I knew what that word meant. Embras are mama alpacas. And they unpack. I'm not making this up. On a baby Kriya, that's a baby alpaca, when a baby Kriya is born, it's called an unpacking. That's a great word. It means to bring it to life, to bring it out to the open, to make it so everybody can see it. It's obvious and plain, and everybody understands it. You suspected it before, but you didn't actually know it. That's unpacking, and that's a jolly good definition of manifest. So the manifest glory of God is when people actually see it, when they see God's glory. It's not just something you talked about. It's not just something you waited for 11 or 12 months. That's how long a gestation period in alpaca is. My, my Wikipedia knowledge right there. So you see this obvious, plain demonstration of the glory of God right now, right in front of you. There's no more question because you see it. And we talk about the word witness so you can tell others about it. It is brought into the light of day. It's unpacked. And now you'll never forget the meaning of that word, unpack. But anyways, back to our cloud. It was the manifest Shekinah glory of God. That's what those big words mean. When God's glory was this thing that we could see with our own eyes, and then we could tell other people and say, I saw it. I know it happened. I mean, for these people 2,000 years ago, they could say that we take it by faith. So when a cloud received Jesus, the people knew that this cloud was God's glory. They knew that meant God was receiving Jesus. 
But that's not all. There's another symbolic meaning for the cloud. Cloud of witnesses. It's the same word. In, in Hebrews chapter 12, we talk about this cloud of witnesses. Now, now Luke wrote in Greek, and he used the same word as, as is used uh, by, by Paul or by whoever wrote Hebrews. Uh, in, in Hebrews chapter 12, it's a clear comparison to the Shekinah glory because it was that word that, I believe in the Septuagint, meant Shekinah glory. I think Luke was trying to say that everybody standing there knew that God was receiving and it was a cloud of witnesses. Now, you might, I'm not very young, but you might think I'm too young to be talking about this because, because when I die, I want to see Jesus face to face. But I'd like to imagine that there are others cheering me on. And they'll be waiting for me, like my grandpa. So maybe in Canada we get all our theology from Johnny Cash, and that means that this cloud of witnesses is just waiting, sitting on the far side banks of Jordan and drawing pictures in the sand. But I think there was a great cloud of witnesses. I think there was a great welcoming committee to see Jesus come back to heaven. Read Revelation. It's like they were, they were his fans, if you will. They were, they were there. They were, they were celebrating his achievements. They were part of heaven. They were affirming him, saying, yes, when you hung on the cross, we, in our part of the spiritual realm, we understood. When you cried out, it is finished, we got that. We believed it. We witnessed it. We saw that you had accomplished what you were sent to do. This cloud of witnesses and all the people back on earth saw them saying, good job, you did it, welcome home. You are, you are worthy because we are witnesses of, of what you did. We saw it. So they are the cloud of witnesses. Back to Luke the evangelist. I, I think he thought long and hard about power of symbolism as a literary technique. His gospel begins with a priest without a blessing. Zacharias was mute. And his gospel ends with a high priest who is giving a blessing. Not just any old priest, but the church's one and only high priest blessing the church. I, I believe Luke was pointing out that change, that shift from a priest, one of many, in a temple made with hands, to the high priest, the one and only, in the air, which is the enemy's territory. He's blessing his flock. And what's more, the flock blessed him in return. Verse 50, and he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass, while he blessed them, that he was parted from them, and carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him, and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. A lot of words blessing in that, a lot of repetition of the word blessing in that passage. The Greek word for that is eulogeo, and we get the word eulogy from this word. What is a eulogy? Well, we know a eulogy is a speech, sometimes a piece of writing that talks about how good a person or a thing was, usually after that person is dead, but not always. In Greek, eulogeo just meant you, or well and true, and logeo from the same root as logos, so a well or a true word. It just meant to speak well of something, to confer what is beneficial upon that thing. And, and we know that Luke cared about his vocabulary. He picked his words. 
So when he records that Jesus blessed Eulogeo, the washing disciples, and then the disciples went back to Jerusalem and blessed Eulogeo him, it is the same word. It is the same word. It's not a coincidence. It's a natural response. Let me read verse 52 again. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. They did him homage, some translations read. They worshipped him because they saw this exalted Christ. And again, for some of them, they had never seen that before. He was their friend. He was the servant. He was the Messiah. But now he was more. Some of them had never seen such a manifestation of power, of holiness, of beauty, of glory, and they worshipped. It's the same response that Isaiah had in Isaiah chapter 6. The the lovely words, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up on a throne. And, And my response when I see all this is just, I am struck dumb, I need to worship. So that's the first part of the verse. They worshipped. I get that. What about the second part of the verse? They, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Joy? Not sorrow. Not heaviness of heart. Not nostalgia. What, what kind of friends were they? Did they not miss Jesus? Is this not a bit crass? They've been close friends with Jesus for over three years. And they thought they had lost him. But then he rose from the dead. And he comes back again, and they're so happy, and now now he leaves again. And I'm sure something told them, something about the angels and his last words, that they'd never see him again. And they're happy. Well, the first reason I offer for this is that they understood. They finally understood. They finally understood that his ministry was accomplished. They understood what it meant when 52 days before, 42 days before, he had cried out on the cross and said, it is finished. They finally got that. The suffering servant now being the exalted Lord, the king, they they rejoiced as a friend would in the exaltation of somebody who's getting his own back with, with many additions. A completion of his earthly ministry. They rejoiced that their friend had successfully completed what he came to do. And second, they saw it as the beginning of his heavenly ministry. He could resume his place. He was no longer limited by being man. He really would be the great king of the entire universe. He left to become king. He left, and his spirit would come in his place. This is part of his heavenly ministry. For them, personally, they they were looking forward to, they they were excited, they were exhilarated, I think, by the idea of this coming of the Holy Spirit. They probably didn't understand what it meant when Jesus said, I'm going to go intercede for you. And they probably didn't know what it meant when Jesus said, I'm going to send a person to give you power. We call that the comforter, the paraclete. But they did believe that it would be better than anything they could have imagined. They knew this by faith, I will add. But he needed to leave them so that they could get started on their new job. That's my third point. I think they were excited about their new job description. They didn't get to go to heaven when Jesus left. 
They didn't get to go with him. Now, this wasn't a problem. He was leaving them the exciting job of going forth, of teaching, of baptizing, the joy of seeing miracles left, right, and center in this new institution, which was as of yet unnamed, but the church. They would be empowered to do all of this without him present. He empowered them through his spirit, but they didn't know what that meant. So in a way, this was, this was a big compliment. Jesus is entrusting them with a great task, and Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm confident you can do this. I am so confident that I can go away, and you'll just take care of it. And we as well, 2,000 years later, we also receive that compliment. That's part of the reason we celebrate Ascension Day. We're receiving a compliment from our boss, who's going to go away on a long trip, and he just thinks we're going to finish the job. Let me finish with a few comments on Jesus' heavenly ministry. It filled the disciples with joy, and it should fill me with great joy too, but what exactly is his heavenly ministry? What is he doing in heaven right now? Hebrews talks about this. It says that Jesus is sitting. That's what he's doing. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. Hebrews provides his own commentary. In the Old Testament, priests never really did sit down. They zoomed all over in this pattern that if you've studied your, your Old Testament scriptures, you've probably come across the idea that it pointed to the cross, but their work was never finished. They were always going around that tabernacle because there were never enough animal sacrifices to actually take away sins. It was just this temporary covering, the band-aid. They couldn't sit down because their work was never finished. But Jesus... Hebrews says, Jesus came along and he had one sacrifice, once for everything. Quality over quantity. When he was done, Hebrews says, he sat down. His work was complete. His sacrifice took away the sins. They weren't just covered. They were gone. Not just a condition or a temporal aspect. They are gone permanently. So he is sitting, contemplating his finished work as a king. As a king. John 14 also talks about what he's doing. I go to prepare a place for you, Jesus says. He had places to go and things to do. That was one of them. It's a personal favorite, I think, because I, I think of people who are already there. Somehow he's sitting down in this position of kingly authority, but he's also putting finishing touches, I don't know, as an architect on a home for me because, because he knows I'm coming. And he's making sure everything's ready for me. He's preparing a place for us because, because he's planning on us getting there safely. He's doing everything he can do. He made the provision through the atonement. He's making intercession for us right now. He's evaluating us and he's telling the spirit, he's saying, oh, work on that area and touch up this spot. And I'm not making this up. This is, this is the work of the king in Revelation when, when he's when we read about the candlesticks, he looks at his churches and he has this ministry of evaluation. He knows our works and he cares about our trip, if you will, so that we can arrive safely. I'd like to close with Ephesians chapter 1, verse 21. It is all about Christ. 
all about Christ being exalted, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. And this ascension of Christ reminds me too that I have a risen life. It's a spiritual reality, but just like his life, his end point, his terminal point, was the, the consummation was this union with his father. We too will ascend. Our faith will become sight. And we also will have union with the father. He's exalted and he's given us spiritual blessings in heavenly places. So we too are exalted, but it's still spiritual. Someday we will be exalted in the body, I understand. And we will reign with him forever. May God be praised. I'll turn the time back to Leonard.